You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we're the Good Evening Girls. We're very fappy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Welcome to Two Girls, One Crossword, your favorite weekly podword crosscast. I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. And we are perfectly normal in every way possible. We are. You might even call us good, as in good evening, girls. Sure. Actually, I don't like to use the word normal, because what is normal, right? Typical? The, the usual? usual average? Oh my god. Let's let's cancel the word normal, okay? You know, there's a place called Normal, Illinois. Yes. My, Everyone there um, has three legs. <laughs> <laughs> my aunt lives there. I feel like, okay, with a name like that, it has to be... I mean, I don't know. She says it's kind of boring. No, if anyone out, if any of our listeners live in normal Illinois. I just have to say that Grace talks shit about normal Illinois every <laughs> On the regular, day. yeah. <laughs> if you're um, normal, you're out. I'm sure it's fine. But do they have like normal high school? <laughs> north normal? That's kind of cute, actually. <laughs> south normal? Oh my God. South and north normal. They fight all the time. You do not want to get involved in that. I love going to their homecoming games. <laughs> Yeah, so what? We go to high school football games on the weekends. There's something so else to do in me. Chicago. Is that wrong? It's the Is only place creepy? where I don't have to wear a mask. I'm just kidding. I always <laughs> wear a mask. Even before Corona, she'd wear a screen mask to high school football games. Just yes. to, you know. Actually, that would be kind fun. Of, we should, well, no, we shouldn't do it because I don't want to mess with people. But in a world where I didn't mind completely messing with people <laughs> before Corona, if you just if we just wore screen masks to, like, high school football games. But, like, what else is there to do? Just, just to, like, to, like cause, cause gossip. gossip? Yes. I feel like the kids at Normal would kind of appreciate that because we'd spice things up a little bit. I think bit. so, too. If anybody from Normal, North Normal or South Normal High are listening, please let us know if you would enjoy that. Because if you would enjoy it, then we'll do it. Yeah. yeah. If, if anyone needs a prank played on a big group of people that is harmless, let me know. That is um, our, um, what is it? MO. Like our strength? Yeah. Yeah. Get us in a room with a large group of people. You have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> Um, but welcome. Sh- yes. Should we get into our heights and shites? <laughs> we should get into the heights and shites. Did you do a lot of crosswords this week? I know you're I, uh, traveling. Yes. I'm visiting family. Um, I did I did a lot of USA Today, and I did do the Washington Post Sunday by Evan Burnholz, which I really enjoyed. I'll, actually, I'll start with that. Start. Let's do it. Um, the first one across made me laugh. I don't know if you did this on purpose. Like cocks and bulls. <laughs> <laughs> and it was male. But come on. You think that's on purpose? Bulls, B-U-L-L-S. Yes. It's always intentional. Okay. These crossword Um, constructors, they're funny. They're funny, Funny some of them. I just, I liked the theme from this one. It was, it was fun to do. So for example, um, 20, there are kind of like three clues per answer. So 23 across was gin vermouth cocktail, which is a martini, plus fermented malt drink, which is ale, equals falsehood about aliens and so if you like mix around the letters in martini and ale you got martian lie kind of mix nice. them around yeah. yeah so another example would be starbucks drink coffee with german wine is a riesling equals emotive shouts cries of feeling nice yeah very nice and there's a bunch, bunch of them in there i don't know how we thought of that but it was fun i enjoyed doing that how do you do your job <laughs> i can barely make it onto this podcast every week yeah. and yet you're constructing a crossword like that for he's every turning Sunday? one of these out every week, week? Come, on. come on what's your secret? amazing what is your secret actually i want to know do you do like five a week and then you take the rest of the month off like what's your deal like how does your creativity work do you get 
do you like fall into dry spells? Like what's going on, Evan? Let us know. It'd be fun if we had him on here. We should. Evan, are you interested? You probably don't listen, but if yeah. you do. <laughs> if anyone who's listening knows him. Tell him to DM well, us. Okay, only tell him if you think he'd be into it. I don't want to make, make it, it weird, weird for him. him. Like, like, you know him, you're like, oh, he might be into that then. Right, and you know in. how weird we are. So if he doesn't like weird people, maybe we're not the duo to interview him. I feel like all crossword constructors probably, you know, teeter on the edge of weirdness. It's kind of a, a right. niche. Right, but okay, on the have. edge of like, if you're like Oh, no, some of them are like really smart. Like, they're like, yeah. too, you know, <laughs> like smart, smart weird, weird and we're more like... <laughs> You know, Meme bottom weird. of the barrel. <laughs> We're scratching Laugh. at nothing here. We got Laugh no cocks and bulls. <laughs> He's like, that was actually a very serious clue. Yeah. yeah. You don't get it. Um, anyway, Evan, we'd love to have you on. Um, I feel like I liked a theme this week. Oh, I did like the theme, a theme this week from the New York Times. Did you do any New York Times puzzles? I did not. No. You would have liked this theme a lot for a very specific reason, which will make you nostalgic and a little bit sad. So, this is from the Tuesday New York Times, September 22nd, by Jeremy Newton, and the theme was the Black Panther, as in, like, the The comic book character and the movie and et cetera, yeah. So, the main clue was 40 Across, a comic book character with the title role in a blockbuster 2018 film, and the answer was The Black Panther, so all the way across the grid, which is really nice. That was um, crossed with Seven Down, late portrayer of 40 Across, Chadwick uh, Bosman. Is it Bosman? I I think it's Bosman. Bosman. And that was crossed, like, directly in the center, so, like, a nice... Oh, that's that's nice. Yeah, and there was a couple others, so... One was source of 40 across is 63 across, and 63 across, the answer was superhuman power. So it's mm-hmm. source of the Black Panther's superhuman power, and the answer was heart-shaped herb. And these were all, like, 15-letter Yeah, uh, wow, answers. that's a really good fill. Yeah, they were really, really good. And there was a couple downs that one answer was Wakanda, and mm-hmm. one was um, T'Challa. So it was just a really great, you know, puzzle to give him a shout-out. Nice love tribute. you, miss you. So that was a nice theme. Yeah, I, I like it when the themes are, I mean, I feel like some people might not like movie themes, but if, right. if it's a movie I've watched, I think it's fun to have a bunch of different questions that all reference one thing, you know, like for my eventual cats crossword, everyone will have to watch, watch cats, cats and know it because <laughs> there's going to be like 10 cats questions. And you'll have to know how to spell the cat's names. So yeah. it's a little difficult. So study up, read the the poetry if you must, but only true fans will only watch the film. So yeah. What else? You um, got? I talking, talking about, about fill, fill that goes all the way across the puzzle. puzzle 15, that are fifteen words. It's always fun when it's like something that you don't see as often. So I liked the USA Today crossword from today, which is Friday, the twenty fifth. September twenty fifth. Sorry, I was just looking at the dates on my computer. Friday. <laughs> I am a robot. Mint condition by Rachel Faby. and uh, it was thirty eight across the Legend of Zelda release of twenty seventeen. Breath, Breath of the, of the Wild. Wild. Yes. Yeah. Wait, did Rachel have a puzzle in the USA Today? Yes. Today? Yes. Nice. She also <laughs> had the Friday New York Times. She's crazy. Oh my God, Rachel, you're crazy. And um, I did the Friday New York Times today because we're recording on a Friday instead of a Thursday if anybody cares out there. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> so I will be including Rachel in my next um next podcast potentially it was a really good puzzle would recommend it i just didn't have enough time to write down my hits and shits from it so Mm -hmm. do it you casuals what else did i like this week what else did i like um oh oh, oh. 
the Monday New York Times, just a shout out. This was done by um, Daniel Larson and the Wave Learning Festival Crossword Class. Um, and so I looked this up, and it's an organization. I'm going to read you their you know, mission statement. So Wave Learning Festival. Um, this is their mission statement. Wave has a commitment to lessen the educational inequities caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the longstanding gaps in educational opportunity. We believe that our students should be given equitable opportunities to succeed both inside and outside the classroom, focusing on those with less access to external resources. Check out their website. It's awesome. Wavelf.org. You can donate there as well. They offer tons of classes. Two classes, I believe, were crossword classes um, with like the aims to eventually submit the crossword to the New York Times. So it's just really cool. And that's what the Monday New York Times, it was Daniel Larson and the Wave class. Um, They had some good fill, which I thought you would like. One was 29 down. Emanations to be picked up, five letters. Uh, Starts five to vibes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So vibe check. Um, the Monday New York oh, Times vibe crossword. check would be a fun fill. It would be fun. Um, Twelve down was paradoxical response to a door knock, and the answer is I'm not there. So just like some fun stuff. We were like um, that. Yeah, and I just I wanted always... to give the Wave class a shout out too. Yeah, I think they did something similar with another organization that was for. Is it for like senior citizens? I believe so, yeah. Or seniors. Like a college in New York, yeah. yeah. It's always fun when it's a big group of people that does a crossword together because I feel like they, since it's, you know, a big group putting together one crossword, you usually get a bunch of fun questions in there. Agreed. Or like really interesting because a lot of people contributing. Yes. Um, I I liked, speaking speaking of of fun, Phil, Phil, the USA Today by Kate Hawkins on September 22nd called Heartbroken. Uh, she had one across Hasbro toy that yells its name at you. Bop it. Oh my god. At first I was like, it came out. I, yeah. I was like, Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was crossed with um, three down event that might involve a flash mob or a decorated locker. Promposal. Oh my god. Promposal. That's a great fill. Yeah. I feel like I've never seen that, but maybe. I'm just forgetting. No, I've but. never seen that, but. It might be out there somewhere, but I really like that. Very yeah, nice. So I like those. Good. Um, Amy Lucita had a great puzzle in the New Yorker. It was uh, Wednesday, September twenty third. Sixteen across. Had it was good. Supreme talent? Question mark. The answer is Diana Ross. Oh, nice. Nice. Tricky. This one was really fun when I finally f- figured out what the answer was. Thirty four across. Pork filled egg roll? Question mark what western omelet oh okay i get it egg roll oh my god yeah and then i feel this like is... western omelet is referenced a lot in is it <laughs> yeah, maybe or, no, or like <laughs> texas omelet there's some omelet that's referenced a lot because there's ham in it anyways omelets are great uh words for crosswords there's lots of vowels going on in there and they're all yes. placed i never know how to spell the damn word omelet oh sorry so. denver omelet okay <laughs> yeah I do love a good Denver omelet. I went on a Denver omelet kick for a long time. For anyone listening, um, there, <laughs> my niece is in the uh, room above me, and she's almost three, and it's her bedtime. So she is, of course, running around like a banshee. A little pitter-pattering of feet. It's more above. of like stomping. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so excuse that. If you hear it, don't, don't mind me. I will I see what I can do when I edit it this week, but yeah, no I, promises. I, I can't control it. Trust me, if, if I knew how to control it, then... I would sell that uh, to my She'd sister. She'd be a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, last 
clue from the New Yorker, Amy Lucido. I just want to give it a shout out. 54 across youth oriented magazine focusing on fashion and politics. Tiger beat. No, Teen Very Vogue. good guess. <laughs> Tiger yeah, beat Tiger- is out. Teen Vogue is in. I read Tiger beat for the articles. She does. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, do you have anything else? No, that's it for me. Okay, I'm going to end on one thing, just like a little public service announcement for anybody out there. And I'm saying this from the goodness of my own heart, since Grace taught me a lesson about cats, okay? Wednesday, September 23rd, New York Times by Margie Christensen. 25 down, activity that might involve setting out saucers of milk. (laughs) And the answer is cat sitting. And Grace taught me in her cat episode that leaving milk out for cats is actually not a good cat sitting activity or activity at all to involve cats yeah they will like the milk i'm not denying that but they're not supposed to eat dairy i mean obviously it makes sense otherwise we'd see cats suckling at the udders of cows (laughs) you know what i mean yeah we don't see that too often yeah there is cat you can buy cat milk like formula for kittens I guess if you're bringing your cat milk formula over to cats it, then. Yeah. There's a more the clever thing these days. Uh, Well, should we get into our little coin flip? Yes. Flip the coin. I'm going to flip it right now. You never know what it's going to be until it's tails. It's me. (gasps) Oh, my God. So my topic comes from the USA Today crossword on September 21st called Things Are Looking Up by Pal Roy and Brooke Husick, and it is 10 down, legendary lost city. Atlantis. Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Atlantis came up last week in a, in a um, crossword with El Dorado, and I was going to do it, but then I... Right. I believe that was... Was that a s- Evan Bernholz? I think it was, yeah. He had a bunch um, of lost cities or, you know, mythical cities or something. Yes. But so you saw then it I had to do you the moon landing. Yeah. It was a sign. Okay. So, the lost city of Atlantis. It's It's a lost island from ancient times, thought to be a utopia with advanced technology and wisdom that could maybe even solve, like, world wars. Thousands of books, magazines, and websites are dedicated to Atlantis, and the search for the sunken continent has cost people small fortunes, and in some cases, their lives. Oh, my God. Dun, dun, dun. So, most of my information today came from History.com and DiscoverMagazine.com. Nice. Pitter patter. Okay. Fact or legend? Where did Atlantis come from? Okay, we actually know like the origin story of Atlantis. It's not one of those like weird things where it's like we don't know. Okay, it first appeared in the work of Plato around 360 BCE in his works Timaeus and Critias. In his text, it is described as quote larger than Libya and Asia combined, which in that time would have referred to modern day northern Africa and about half of Turkey. It was okay. situated in the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere outward of the Strait of Gibraltar. And this was explicitly said in his writings, which will come into play later. Okay. Okay. So, Atlantis was home to the most advanced architects in the world. The city is rich with palaces, temples, docks, and harbors. The capital city was built on a hill and was surrounded by several rings of water. All the rings were joined by tunnels that made it possible for ships to sail through them. All the outer rings were connected to the ocean with a huge canal. 
Outside of the capital city, there were fields designed for farmers to grow the food for the city's population. So the city was, like, entirely self-sufficient. Okay, and um, hold on. So all of this information is coming from Plato's writing? Yes, this is all from okay. Plato's writing. Past the fields, the wealthy villagers lived up in the mountains. The homes of the wealthy villagers looked amazing with fountains, stone walls, precious metals covering the walls. And to me, it sounds kind of like Walt Disney's original <laughs> plan for Epcot City. Uh, listen to episode 58, Under the Dome. <laughs> So even though today it's kind of described as like this perfect utopia, I guess that's kind of redundant. But anyways, <clears throat> um, that is not what yeah, that is not really like what Plato envisioned. In fact, in his book Encyclopedia of Dubious Archaeology um, by Ken Fetter, who is a professor of archaeology, he says, "quote Atlantis is not the perfect society. Quite the contrary, Atlantis is the embodiment." of a materially wealthy, technologically advanced, and militarily powerful nation that has become corrupted by its wealth, sophistication, and might. So it was basically supposed to be the opposite of Athens, which Plato loved. And it was supposed to be a warning at what would happen to a city if it became too obsessed with, like, wealth, power, and material objects. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Oh, hmm. Relevant. Yes. I'm loving this. (laughs) So um, legend regarding like it's associated with poseidon and the legend with that is that poseidon was looking for the largest island in the sea and he came upon it and he realized everyone on the island was extremely beautiful and smart etc like basically better than any other human in the world and he fell in love with cleto which is a woman on the island and had five sets of twins so 10 kids all boys and the oldest boy was called atlas um who later became king of atlantis hence the name atlantis Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. Yes. As the Atlanteans grew more powerful, their ethics declined, and their armies eventually conquered Africa as far as Egypt and Europe as far as Italy, before being driven back by an Athenian-led alliance. Like I said, this was all to show like how, you know, Athens was better. Okay. So later, by way of divine punishment, the island was plagued by earthquakes and floods and sank into a muddy sea. Ooh. So that's, rough. that's why it's a lost city. Rough like... Luck, I should say. So, is the story real? Hmm. Tell me. At the time it came out, reactions were torn. One of the most famous believers was Krantor, which is a well-known commentator of Plato's dialogue, and he was a student at the Academy in Athens, which was founded by Plato. Right, makes sense. However, Aristotle uh, believed that Plato made the whole thing up. And that it was just supposed to be, like, a metaphor, you know, or an allegory, I guess. Okay. Anyways. Most people sided with Aristotle and kind of like moved on from their lives and didn't really talk about Atlantis that much. Moved on from their lives? Yes. <laughs> or moved on with their lives? Both. Eventually. Okay. Everyone Very dies. good. Okay. That's true. True. Sorry. Um, but in the 17th century, the idea of Atlantis like being real started showing up again. Oh my God. People were so bored in the 17th century. I swear. Honestly. Um, in 1627, the English philosopher and scientist Francis Bacon published a utopian novel titled The New Atlantis, depicting, similarly to Plato's, a politically and scientifically advanced society on the previous unknown oceanic island. And this was the start of, like, the utopian and dystopian stories in fiction. Okay. It became very popular. Mm -hmm. Um, Many Europeans started trying to tie, uh, like, origins of Atlantis with Western countries, like America. Hello. Um, Scandinavia and the Canary Islands. Of course, they <laughs> want to make all about them. And a lot of times people from Atlantis are described as being like really tall and super pale. But in Plato's original work, they were like, you know, Middle Eastern. Right. Log into YouTube yeah. to watch me roll my eyes a couple times. <laughs> 
Um, but the man most responsible for bringing back the legend was an American. Okay. A Minnesota congressman, Ignatius L. Donnelly. And in 1882, he published Atlantis, the Anti-Diluvian World, which hypothesized that Atlantis was um, an ancient civilization whose immigrants had populated Europe, Africa, and America, and whose heroes had inspired Greek, Hindu, and Scandinavian mythology. So basically, he argued that all of civilization came from Atlantis. Who is this guy, and what are his credentials? Well, Donnelly drew parallels between creation stories in the Bible and Atlantis, where he believed the biblical Garden of Eden existed. Oh, right. Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. And he also believed that Atlantis was destroyed by the Great Flood mentioned in the Bible. Sounds about Christian. Yes. So he is considered the father of modern of the modern Atlantis myth. Okay. And basically he set off like a domino effect of all these other people like trying to search for it and just, you know, talking about it. Right. One of these people was Russian mystic Madame Blavat- Blavat- Blavatsky. Blavatsky. There we go. Sorry. I don't speak Russian. Anyways. <clears throat> you don't? You so, look like you do. I know. I get that all the time. So she mentions Atlantis in her 1888 book, The Secret Doctrine which you might recognize. So basically she wrote about racial evolution as opposed to primate evolution. And according to her, Atlantis, or the citizens of Atlantis were the fourth race, which was then succeeded by a more superior fifth race, um, or she called it the Aryan race, Aryan race. And as you may know, (laughs) the Aryan race and its supremacy is one of the founding principles of the Nazis. Wow, this is all, all tied together. Mm-hmm. Wow. And thank God we had the birth of the Atlantis mania to that Minnesotian, what do you call him, a senator? Uh, he was a... Congressman? Congressman, yes. Thank God for him. Thank God for the Russian Aryan inventor. Love it. You know, she probably, I feel like she would have come up with it on her own or would have found some other excuse to write about it. But, okay. True. Um, Edgar Case is an American clairvoyant from the 1920s, and he is kind of, so he, he was like one of the first people to claim he could talk to source, which is something that's very, um, there's like a theory that's very common in the new age movement. So a lot of people credit him with being the father of some of these, you know, more new age ideas. And he mentioned Atlantis a lot. So he would give psychic readings for people. And he claimed that a lot of these people were, um, People who had past past lives lives in Atlantis. Atlantis. So So he thinks thinks that, that like, you know, if you came from Atlantis, you were some superior human being, blah, blah, blah. Of course, of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But But he had had a couple couple predictions about Atlantis Atlantis that did not come true. So he he said that um, it would be discovered in 1969, which didn't happen, as far as I know. However, the moon was discovered in 1969. Landed on. Yeah. Yeah. Discovered. There it is. Uh, and he also said that the U.S. would discover that a death ray destroyed the island, which the jury's still out on that one. Okay, okay you, you know that Stanley Kubrick built that death ray, and you know he sent it back in time, and you know it destroyed Atlantis. So wake up, sheeple. Yeah, when you're right, you're right. We can't deny it, or we can't prove it, but you also can't 100% deny that that happened. <clears throat> so... So, so since, since Donnelly's, Donnelly's day, day, there have there been, been dozens of location predictions for Atlantis, many of which are not in the Atlantic at all. So, so all the proposed sites share some characteristics of Plato's story, like water, catastrophic ending, etc. And some potential locations throughout the years have been the Canary Islands in the Atlantic Ocean, um, 
and the Madeira Islands, also in the Atlantic Ocean. In 2004, Swedish scientist Ulf Erlingsson proposed that the legend of Atlantis was based on Stone Age Ireland. I've heard um, this, actually. Yeah. In 2011, a team working on a documentary for um, Nat Geo, led by Professor Richard Frond from the University of Hartford, claimed to have found possible evidence of Atlantis in southwestern Andalusia, Spain. Andalusia, Spain. Ooh. Some believe it existed in the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean. I've heard this, too. Um, and several people have speculated that Atlantis is actually located underneath Antarctica. Oh, my God. Could you mm-hmm. imagine? No, let's melt the ice, there. folks. Yeah. <laughs> We're on our way. So there is also a lot of theories that the inhabitants of Atlantis are extraterrestrial. Um, so do not think it's not yeah. possible. Some think uh, the people who lived in Atlantis were aliens who could live to be 800 years old. That's why they were so advanced. Um, and others believe that Atlantis doesn't exist on Earth. So, uh, I mean, just Google Atlantis and aliens and you will go down a dark <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, but a lot of people point that Atlantis was like a city on Mars and that NASA found something. I don't know. Yeah. Listen, I go folks, on these websites that ufologists yeah. are cuckoo bananas. I mean, and I say that with as much love as humanly possible. I don't want the ufologists <laughs> to come after me. I think you guys are amazing. And I believe some of your theories. So, well... Yeah, I was, like, looking on these websites for Atlantis and aliens. I was like, I can't say any of this stuff. (laughs) This is not, like, a reputable source. Um, However, the most commonly accepted location uh, is the Greek island of Santorini, which is half submerged um, because of a volcanic eruption. So that kind of goes with the story. And it makes sense. Like, Plato was writing about something. Like, if it was real, and I'm not saying it is, Plato would have written about something that was, like, near or close by. Closer than, let's say, Antarctica. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Well, okay. So advances in science and the understanding of how plate tectonic works um, and like how the ocean floor works have basically proven that there's no way that Atlantis could have like sunk into the bottom of the ocean, um, especially in the specific area of the Mediterranean that Plato says it's located. So you can't forget that Plato, who said the story, said specifically where it is. Like he has a quote. It's on by like the pillars of Hercules, blah, blah, blah. So So all all these people people who are like, well, maybe it's in the Bermuda Triangle. Maybe it's here. It's like, wake up. Yeah, where are you getting that from? Um, But, you know, for many people, the dream is still alive. So Mark Adams released a book in 2015 titled Meet Me in Atlantis, My Obsessive Quest to Find the Sunken City. What a great title. I know. I kind of like it. It actually has like a lot of reviews on Amazon. So I'm sure it does. Um, So Adams believes that there is a bit of truth to Plato's story. He says, quote, A lot of archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians won't touch Atlantis with a 10-foot pole. It's kryptonite um, because it's bad for your career, you know, if you're a serious archaeologist. But those who I spoke to who were willing to discuss it said, Find the kernel of truth in what is essentially a myth, and then you'll be able to determine how much of the story is true. Okay. So, so according, according to Adams, Adams Plato, Plato had said the story of Atlantis um, was like a story that had been passed down through his ancestors orally, and he said it was first acquired uh, from ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Okay. So, so he, he thinks, thinks like, like, you know, if you look at hieroglyphics, we may be able to find more information on the story. Okay. He also points out that the story is in two of Plato's mo- most important works. So he's, he's arguing, like, why would Plato put this fake story in you know these very important serious works because it doesn't make any sense and uh adam says quote 
He also repeatedly says, Plato, this is a true story, this is a true story, this is a true story. Whether he's saying that, ironically, we can't tell from this vantage point. So Plato claims, like, over and over again that it's a true story. Okay. In his original work where he mentioned it. I do like the idea that, like, maybe he was writing about some kind of civilization that, you know, existed, you know, in the past mm-hmm. and, um, you know, was an antithesis of Athens. And, you know, he was like, we don't want to become this antithesis of Athens again. So watch out, folks. Whether yeah. or not he actually ever stepped foot in Atlantis or saw it or whether his ancestors did. To be determined. The jury is still out, folks. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just, I just want, want to say, say that, that the people, people who think Atlantis, Atlantis is true... Like, like, don't, don't believe, believe the Poseidon, Poseidon part, necessarily. They sure, think that is just, like, you know, a myth. Um, but, but they think there is some truth okay. to it. That there okay. is some lost city somewhere that used to be extremely advanced. Some people think all the technology we have today comes from Atlantis. So, do you know another seeker of Atlantis? You may know Tell him. me. Director James Cameron. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Did I, did I so, know this? <laughs> in 2017, he did a doc series with National Geographic um, with filmmaker Simcha Chikabavici called Atlantis Rising. And it's out there. If you're so interested, you can watch it. So, um, Simcha said, quote, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word Atlantis, they put it in the same category as alien abduction. That is simply not the case. Somebody wrote this story down, and it's not just anybody. It was Plato, one of the most famous philosophers in history. <laughs> Gotta trust uh, Plato. <laughs> yeah, except unless he was using it for... And uh, allegorical reasons, yeah. yeah. So the real question is, are you a believer? <sighs> I'm not not a believer. I don't think that there is a city much like you see in the Disney's, or it's not Disney's, Atlantis. What's Atlantis's um, DreamWorks? Yeah, yeah, that was when they were divorced, right? Right. Um, I don't think that you and I can hop in, like, our little submarine that I keep in my backyard and, like, hop down to Atlantis and, like, go through the little bubble and, like, breathe underwater and, like, there's people living underwater. I don't think that's real. Yeah. I do think it's possible that there was potentially a civilization that was advanced for the time, you know, mm-hmm. like, they had fireplaces instead of fire pits, that kind of thing. Um, and Plato's ancestors saw it and then passed the information down and was like, this is crazy, like... But they're becoming capitalists, so we don't want to, like, get too close to them, but they're so advanced. Um, I think that that's possible. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. that. But I do think think if it does exist, exist, the most likely likely location, I would say, is under Antarctica. Antarctica. Agreed. Yeah, or Mars. Yeah, Yeah. although I feel feel like they'd be able to see with, like, you know, technology technology and whatnot (laughs) what was (laughs) under Antarctica. Can't they, like, x-ray it and see if there's anything underneath that is a great question, Grace. Can't they just x-ray the ocean? <laughs> I don't know. Can, Can the Earth just get x-rayed? What's the big deal? Um, that's true. We should get a scientist on here and tell us about whether or not that's possible. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Evan knows. <laughs> Evan! Um, no, I think I think Antarctica is a great option. I also think that you mentioned um, Ireland. Mm-hmm. The island, there is supposed to be in like Irish mythology, like an secret island or like a mythical island that appears like every 1000 years or something like that and it's like controlled by like a wizard and (laughs) a lot of ufologists connect like ufo landings or whatever um to this island as well as like you know places like the great pyramid and you know the stonehenge things like that 
Um, there's like another point on one of these UFO ufologist maps that's that secret mystical alien island uh, off the coast of Ireland, which I guess people also reference as potentially being Atlantis. Yeah. Maybe it only comes out every thousand years and we missed it last time. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, if everyone thinks it could be possible, possible who am I to say that it's not? <laughs> We're not about to stop your fun. That's for damn sure. We got nothing else going for us. So have Atlantis. Well, yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's it. it. That's, that's Atlantis, Atlantis for you. Thanks. I love it. So my topic comes from the Tuesday, September 22nd, New York Times by Jeremy Newton. This is, oh, Jesus. I think it was three down. I didn't write it down. Mr. in The Wind in the Willows. And the answer is Toad, as in Mr. Toad. Oh. Are you familiar with The Wind in the Willows? Yes. It's a children's book, right? Correct. I think okay. I might have read the children's book once, very, like, a long, long time ago. Um, and I might have seen some adaptation, whether it was, like, a TV show or a film or something like that. Um, but I know the illustrations. Like, if you were to show me the illustration, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know who Mr. Toad is. But is outside related? of that... Go ahead. Because isn't there, like, Mr. Toad and Mr. Frog or something? It's not those characters. Okay. I thought it was those characters. It is not... But similarly, we've got anthropomorphic animals. Okay, hey, if the toad works, it works. Kids it does. love toads. Kids love a good toad. Um, so I, through doing this research, I realized I thought Mr. Toad was from Mr. Toad and Mr. Frog. <laughs> um, it was not. And then I also thought, even though I didn't know who Mr. Toad was, I was like, I've read this book. And then I was like, did I read this book? So I learned a lot today. I learned a lot. Uh, so yeah, I'm talking about Mr. Toad. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Toad is one of the main characters in Kenneth Graham's 1908 novel, The Wind in the Willows, as the clue says. Um, we're going to talk about the author first because he's important to this whole story because not only yeah. did he write the story, <laughs> but his story itself is interesting. Okay, so Kenneth Graham was born in Scotland in 1859. He's a Scottish author. So he has kind of a sad childhood in that his mom died when he was five. His father was a drunk. And because his dad was like a super alcoholic, the dad gave up um, custody of Kenneth and Kenneth's three uh, siblings. Uh, they went and lived with their grandmother. Um, and their grandmother lived in a very large but kind of dilapidated rundown house. And the house was called The Mount, like out in, you know, the countryside, right? Mm -hmm. uh, There's lots of land. There was uh, a part of like the River Thames is like up by the house. So they grew, they like, you know, grew up around there. Graham became like obsessed with boating because he was like on the river for like most of his childhood. His uncle like taught him how to boat and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then they were also really close to a forest called Quarry Woods. Um, and so it's believed that Quarry Woods inspired the setting for the wind in the willows and also the river because the the book kind of takes place on the bank. The book takes place on the bank of a river with some forests and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Cool. So Graham began writing, you know, in his 20s. Uh, and he had things published in small publications throughout that time. And his second most famous book, The Reluctant Dragon, which became a Disney movie you might be familiar with. I never saw it. It's like one of those really old animated Disney films. Okay. Because um, is it How to Train Your Dragon? <laughs> no, I wish. That would be actually kind of funny. Um, so the... The Reluctant Dragon was published in 1898. So that was his, like, second most famous book. Uh, he married his wife, Elspeth Thompson, in 1899 when he was 40 years old. This will come into play later. Fun fact, uh, 
Kenneth's wife, uh, Elspeth, her father was a guy named Robert William Thompson, who invented the fountain pen. So that's just wow, kind of cool. Wow, an author? Oh my God, kind of crazy. So the year after they got married, they had one son, um, and his name was Alistair. They nicknamed him Mouse, which I think is actually a really oh, cute name. That's cute. Um, it's cute when you're a kid, I guess not when you're like 25. Right, no, you, you start calling me <laughs> Mouse, and I'm like, get out of here. Get, get I'm you. Rat now. <laughs> Rat will make an appearance later. <laughs> so, yeah, they nicknamed him Mouse, uh, but he was born prematurely, so he actually had health issues his entire life. He was blind in one eye, um, so just a rough life for Alistair, a.k.a. Mouse. Yeah. So we're going to backtrack a little bit. Before he got married, before he had kids, before he started writing, he really wanted to go to Oxford. Graham did, right? Um, he he went to like a prep school, basically, and he had the grades to get into Oxford, but his family was super poor, so he could not go to school there. Uh, so he en- ended up working at a bank. He worked at the Bank of England, um, and he worked there for a while, but he eventually re- retired in 1908 because he had kind of a, um, a disagreement with a higher up at the bank. And... Mm-hmm. In researching this guy, we'll talk a little bit about it later, there's a lot of mystery around what the disagreement could have been between Graham and this higher up at the bank. The guy's name was Cunliffe. We'll talk about that. Um, Anyway, so he retires from the bank in 1908. uh, And it was in his retirement that Graham wrote The Wind in the Willows, which is his most famous book. Uh, So he used to come up with... um, bedtime stories for his son you know sit at his bedside mm-hmm. tell him stories he eventually wrote these down in notes for his son so his son could have them and reread them if he wanted to he went in retirement got everything together and he wrote a book called the wind in the willows um and the main character mr toad is supposedly a satirization of his son because alistair was like up to antics and up to no good a lot of the time and so mm-hmm. when graham would tell stories to his son at nighttime he was kind of you know being really tongue-in-cheek about it which i think is yeah. cute be like mr um, toad didn't want to eat his dinner today and so <laughs> yeah well wait until you hear what mr toad gets up to because i think you'll think alistair was a young child getting up to this i don't know okay sadly alistair killed himself when he was an undergraduate at Oxford. Oh my God, why didn't you tell me this before when I was talking about him growing up? I know. Um, it's actually a really sad story. So he was 20 years old when he killed himself. Um, and so, like I mentioned, Kenneth Graham was obsessed with wanting to go to Oxford, but he couldn't go. And so no. him and his wife really pushed their son to go to Oxford. And I think as you know, that typical parents trying to live through their child kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and they kind Kenneth and Elspeth raised Alistair to kind of, they told him, like, you're a genius, essentially, and, like, you're going to go to Oxford, and you're going to be doing all these amazing, great things. But Alistair continued and again and again to fail the entrance exam at Oxford, and he, like, couldn't do it. And he was just like, I'm not living up to these expectations that my parents are setting for me. It got to the point where there's, like, records at Oxford where he failed his exam and next to his name it was pass or go written in the margin which basically means you have to pass the next one or you're not getting into the school at all and Mm -hmm. so he failed the exam and then he laid himself on a train tracks near oxford and was decapitated by a train oh my gosh that's too much pressure all for oxford for oxford and for what to live up to your father's dreams yeah we're gonna talk about his father's dreams (laughs) we're gonna talk about them We'll get there. Um, Okay, so let's get to the book. Enough of the sadness and enough of the drama, Mm -hmm. right? 
the book, The Wind and the Willow, was published in 1908 um, after Graham retired from the Bank of England. Uh, it's told in these sort of episodic, like, short story type, you know, chapters. And it focuses on four main characters. They're all anthropomorphic animals, like I said. We have Mole, Rat, Mr. Toad, and Badger. And there are other supporting characters like Otter, Pan, there's squirrels, there's rabbits. And then you have the antagonists, who are the weasels, ferrets, and stouts. Mm. So a little bit, you cannot trust them. A little bit about the characters. Mole, a.k.a. Moly, is very (laughs) humble and loyal. Uh, He decides to leave his hole after deciding he's sick of spring cleaning. Um, And initially, he's overwhelmed by the hustle and bustle of the riverbank where all the animals live when he leaves. And he's like, ugh. But then Rat comes along. Rat, also known as Ratty by his friends, is much more cultured and relaxed. He's Mm. friendly. He enjoys a life of leisure. And, you know, he finds Mole and he's like, I'm taking you under my wing. And so Rat kind of looks over, looks after Mole. Um, so then we have Mr. Badger. Um, and Mr. Badger is gruff but kind. He's kind of the, like, wise loner of the group. You know, he kind of stays in his house in the woods. Um, he's the friend of the late Mr. Toad's father. No, Mr. Toad's late father. So Mr. Toad's father was friends with Mr. Badger when he was alive. Uh, And that's how Mr. Toad gets brought into all of this. Mr. Toad, a.k.a. Toady to his friends, (laughs) um, is like the wealthy son and heir to Toad Hall. He inherited all his money from his father. Um, He's got a good heart. He's really nice. He's super optimistic. uh, But he's also super arrogant and impulsive. (laughs) So he gets up and he gets into a lot of trouble. He also goes through cycles of obsessions throughout the story, like punting. Punting is basically boating on the river. Mm -hmm. The closest I could tell you of what a punting boat looks like is like a gondolier in a way. Have you ever seen like, uh, you know, period pieces set at Oxford and like they're like in the lounging in boats on the river at Oxford and just like pulling their way through the rivers? That's kind of what (laughs) punting is. Yeah. I haven't watched period pieces that often. (laughs) You know this. I know this. I, I obviously do. I have a very distinct image in my head. I also just yeah. rewatched Brideshead Revisited, which is basically all they do is punt around the rivers in um, Oxford. Anyway, so Mr. Toad's obsessed with punting, houseboats, uh, caravans, that kind of stuff. But eventually he gets bored with all of these things. And you know what his new obsession is? What? Motor cars. So cars. He okay? can't drive. Toads can drive, okay? They can but do they have tiny they cars. They have tiny toad cars, okay? Don't tell him what he can't do. Um, okay, so his obsession with cars lands him in the hospital and even gets him arrested because he stole a car. Um, and he eventually does escape from prison, though. Of course. Wait, this is all in one book? This is all in one book. I haven't even gotten to the plot yet. Yeah, wait, can you even... <laughs> is this, like, to read at night? I feel like this is too long. <laughs> You know, for it to hold the kid's attention. I think they probably just, you get you get one chapter a night, Alistair, or whatever yeah. it is you say to your kid. Um, <laughs> I don't have kids, so I wouldn't know. Uh, let's talk about the plot now that we've mentioned the plot. Like I said, it was kind of told in these, like, episodic adventures, right? These little chapters. Mm-hmm. Mr. Toad's, like I said, is given to, you know, fads. He goes in these obsessive states. Uh, and when he goes through these obsessive states, he brings along his friends, Mole and Rat. Uh, Mole and Rat 
realized that Mr. Toad is just getting more and more impulsive and dangerous. Like he crashes, you know, different caravans and things like that. And they're just like, we can't deal with this guy anymore. It's too much. You know what they do? They decide to go visit Badger in the woods and they're like, Badger, we need to stage an intervention. Toad is out of control. And Badger's like, I knew his late father. I'll do anything to control this boy. Right. Um, So they try to stage this intervention, but Toad's like, you know what? Peace. He disappears. He steals an unattended car and like races it down the road and that's what gets him arrested god damn it toad okay so he's only in jail for a little bit the jailer's daughter decides to help him out she's a nice lady uh, and he escapes from prison but while all of this is happening while all of the i'm stealing a car getting you know imprisoned getting the jailer's daughter to free me toad's ancestral home is infiltrated by the weasels stouts and ferrets and so his three friends team up with Toad to, like, claim the house back again. You mean Toad Hall? Toad Hall. So that's basically the story. Uh, and <laughs> it's Classic quite a, Toad. Classic Toad is incredibly popular. We got great themes, you know, like we talk about morality. There's an adventure. We talk about friendship. So obsession. Of course, obsession. So, of course, it's lasted generations, right? Mm-hmm. And there have been many adaptations of The Wind and the Willows throughout history, one of the most notable, and I'm bringing it up for a very specific reason, uh, was one for the stage written by a guy named A.A. Milne. <gasps> you may know A.A. Milne from episode six, where Grace talked about uh, Winnie the Pooh. So you should check it out. Uh, and if you don't know, A.A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh. Like, that's the connection there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, actually, when you were talking about Mr. Toad and how he grew up, it reminded me of Milne and how he kind of wrote Winnie the Pooh based on... Right, exactly. You know, I mean, what else the do these country, white yeah. authors have to do but to, like, live in the country and write children's books about them? Yeah, and there's probably only, like, five children's books out at the time, so it's not that hard to come up with, like, a unique topic, you know? <laughs> exactly. We're not exactly. salty. It's fine. <laughs> We're not. Um, so, yeah, Milne wrote this play. It was called Toad of Toad Hall. Uh, it was released in 1929. Uh, he later wrote a preface to, like, a later edition of The Wind and the Willow. Um, and in the preface, this is what he had to say about, you know, the book. Quote, the book is a test of character. We can't criticize it because it's criticizing us. It is a household book, a book which everybody in the household loves and quotes continually. A book which is read aloud to every new guest and is regarded as the touchstone of his worth. Um, no. <laughs> I don't have any books that I read aloud to my guests. Okay, I have the Bible, so well, don't diss me. Except for maybe scary stories to tell in the dark. Sometimes I do like to make guests read that with me <laughs> just one story i mean you have to find a book that judges your guest's character because how else are you supposed to judge their character true that is true it's true um outside of a.a a. milne's obsession with the wind in the willows <laughs> we've had at least 10 tv adaptations there's a famous one from 1984 cool it's like a weird puppety stop motion one you should look it up like the puppets are kind of creepy, but hey, you know, people really liked puppets at the time, I yeah. think. Oh, yeah, especially at that time. Um, and so then there's, of course, the 1949 adaptation by Disney. Uh, this was actually released as The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. I talked about the Disney adaptation of, you know, Ichabod Crane in episode 46, titled Hey, mm-hmm. Hey, Big Head. So check it out if you're interested. <laughs> I don't think I've actually seen the Disney adaptation of Mr. Toad, but I have seen The Adventures of Ichabod, like, so many times. Yeah. I feel like, well, I I think I've seen Mr. Toad as a meme. Is is that from the 
you know what I'm talking about? Like I the drawings so. of him? I don't know if that's from yeah. a book or if it's from like a cartoon. Right. I think they might be the original illustrations. He's like a green okay. little frog. He has a hat and like a tweed coat. Yes. Yes. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's adorable. Um, a toad in a coat. Yeah. So we've gotten through the basics. Okay. So now yeah. we're going to get back into the author and what the author was trying to say when he wrote The Wind in the Willow. And a question that came up in my research is, is The Wind in the Willow a gay manifesto? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> the answer is it, yes. But yes. I've done no research, but I'm saying yes. So <laughs> there is a professor from Cardiff University. His name is Professor Peter Hunt. He released a book in 2018 <laughs> called... Sorry, Hunt is a dangerous last name. <laughs> You gotta be careful, kids. Yeah, be careful what you do with the first name. True. Like if his first name was Mike. Don't say that out loud, okay? I'm Especially not, not in front of children. It. I'm not saying it. Oh my god, shush. Anyway, okay. so Peter Hunt <laughs> released this book called The Making of the Wind in the Willows. And he claims in his book that Graham, Kenneth Graham, who wrote The Wind in the Willows, was in fact gay, and he wrote it as a way to kind of be like I love male relationships and this is like the only way that I can express myself as a gay man. He also claims in his book that Graham lived separately from his wife and son because he was in a loveless marriage. Apparently Mm -hmm. Graham would stay with his wife and son on weekends, but spent the week in London with his roommate W Graham Robertson. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about Robertson. Robertson was a painter, illustrator, author, set, and costume designer, but most importantly, he was an art collector of which he donated many pieces to the Tate Museum. So we have a lot of beautiful work in the Tate Museum thanks to this guy that Kenneth Graham apparently was roommates with. Okay, yeah, I feel roommates. like a lot of people were roommates back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I could not find much online to corroborate the claim that Kenneth Graham was in fact gay, except for this Peter Hunt book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't find anything that was like the wind in the willow was, has like gay themes. Okay. Yeah. Except uh, for that one chapter. Except for the one chapter where they. Yeah. yeah. I'll have an orgy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I couldn't find a lot online, you know, to say yes or no, but there are like articles, right. That talk about Robertson, Graham's roommate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and these articles suggest that Graham wasn't, uh, I mean, sorry, Robertson was in fact gay. So there's a couple things we're going to talk about regarding Robertson being potentially gay. One, John Singer Sargent, who's a famous painter, painted Robertson twice. Why is this important? It's relevant because John Singer Sargent was a lifelong bachelor and most people just assume he was gay. Like that is the common thought is that he never married. He mm-hmm. hung around in Italy and just banged a lot of guys. So, like, that's the general thought. And he painted Robertson twice, and Robertson is pretty cute, okay? We'll look yeah. at some pictures. He is adorable. Not only are there paintings of him, but there are some awesome, awesome photographs of him. And I'm <laughs> like, you're really cute, and I would be gay for you if I was Graham. Yeah, right Anyway. <laughs> um, and so I don't know if Sargent and Robertson, like, ever had a thing, and – but the point is that they both floated in circles where being mm-hmm. queer was seen as kind of normal, okay? Sargent was also close friends with Oscar Wilde, 
Um, And he was close friends with a lesbian author, Violet Paget, whose pen name was Vernon Lee, one of the famous, you know, English authors. So Mm -hmm. you got got a lot of queers hanging out with each other. Um, And so you got all these queers hanging out with each other. One of them, Robertson, potentially lives with Graham, the author of The Wind in the Willows, as roommates. Interesting. Um, Like five days out of the week. (laughs) While he's married. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, I also found an article that suggests Robertson was potentially a one-time lover of Oscar Wilde. Okay. And Oscar Wilde may have, in fact, like based Dorian Gray off of Robertson in a painting, one of the John Singer Sargent paintings. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with Dorian Gray, the whole thing is that there's this beautiful painting of this guy and it becomes more and more deteriorated, like the eviler Dorian becomes, even though Dorian stays beautiful. Um, All of the bad things he does happens to the painting. So like the whole painting connection, John Singer, Sargent Mm -hmm. painting, Robertson. No, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. Okay, I can see it. Um, So, and it's also important to, oh, wait, 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 what's this? Oh, yes. So Robertson apparently lived with Graham, but he also, since he was an illustrator, illustrated the original front piece for Graham's uh, first edition, The Wind in the Willow. Hmm. Hmm. So now they're just doing creative things together, like creative Ugh, I'm just imagining them, like, waking up in the morning, drinking coffee, and just, like, working on their novel. Oh, my God. Canoodling. Um, yeah. Good for you. Uh, so. Well, except I feel, do feel bad for his wife and kid. I, I do, too. I do. Yeah. Um, it, but it's important to note that at this time, like, Kenneth Graham was writing and alive when during a time where it was very much legal to be gay in the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. and pretty much everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde was actually sentenced to two years of hard labor and imprisoned from 1895 to 1897 uh, for what was called gross indecency at the time, which is essentially uh, criminalization of sexual activity between men, anything that fell short of penetration. And then if they could prove that you actually had penetrative sex, it was a different crime and you got like a worse sentence. Mm-hmm. So Oscar Wilde went to jail, did his sentence, and then he left, and he spent the last three years of his life impoverished and in exile under a false name because he was gay. And so, like, this is the time period where Graham yeah. was writing and roomating with Robertson. So it's not like he would be openly, like, you yeah, know, yeah, keeping yeah. any romantic letters with him, right? Um, so then I found a nice article in the LA Review of Books. This article asks, quote, could the emotionally tender all-male friendships in his book, his being Graham, um, and especially the cohabitation of mole and rat, because they live with each other for a little while, represent mm-hmm. his own secret wishes? I mean, possibly. I also found an article that was like counterpoint to this. Why do, all, why do when we find all-male friendships in books, uh, do we have to automatically make them gay? And I'm like, honey, everybody's queer. Everyone's a yeah. little queer. Okay, especially if they were writing in a time where it was bad to be gay. Okay, yeah, let us have this. We don't have anything else. (laughs) Um, So the article in the LA Book Review goes on to comment, quote, the loveliness of Graham's portrayal of friendship has been much commented upon. It doesn't consist merely of chumminess messing around in boats, as the famous line has it, but in sensitivity, making amends and forgiveness. There's a chapter in Wind in the Willow where Rat and Mole are headed home from Badger's house, uh, and they pass by Mole's old home, which is like a hole, right? They pass by Mole's old hole. Um, and here's an excerpt from that section, and I think it talks, it speaks volumes like the tenderness of what Graham was writing between mm-hmm. two male characters who also lived with each other. So, quote, 
the mole subsided forlornly on a tree stump and tried to control himself, for he felt it surely coming. The sob he had fought with so long refused to be beaten. Up and up it forced its way to the air, and then another, and another, and others thick and fast, till poor Mole at last gave up the struggle and cried freely and helplessly and openly, now that he knew it was all over and he had lost what he could hardly be said to have found. The rat, astonished and dismayed at the violence of Mole's paroxysm of grief, did not dare to speak for a while. At last he said, very quietly and sympathetically, "'What is it, old fellow?' Whatever can be the matter, tell us your trouble and let me see what I can do. End quote. Oh. Very, cool. very, very cute. And yeah, also, also pretty advanced for a kid's book. Dude, there's words in there I can't even yeah. friggin' say. So paroxysms, hello. <laughs> this is why this kid really wanted to go to Oxford. Yeah, um, not pressure. Yeah, so to kind of like loop back to him being, you know, retiring from the Bank of England, Graham, I mean, there are rumors that potentially the guy that he had beef with at the Bank of England knew he was gay and forced him to retire early because his pension check was supposed to be higher than it ended up being. And the the reason for his retirement, like early retirement, was put down as like illness. But Graham refuted that his whole life, that it was not illness. It was that he, he and this Cunliffe guy had a big disagreement, but he would never tell mm. what it was about. So, wow. was it because Cunliffe knew he was gay? Queer? Who knows? Maybe. I certainly don't know, but it's something to think about. And I think we should look for queer subtext in almost all literature because yeah, a lot of people are gay and a lot of people were writing and cl- closeted, especially during times when, you know, you yeah, could what, be forced to do Edgar hard Allan labor. Poe? Yeah, he was uh, marrying 13 and 14 year olds. So not only was he a drunk, but he was a pedophile. So. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's fine. I think I'm going to go read The Wind in the Willow. Yeah, I'm going to read it to, before I go to bed tonight. If I can make it through. I mean, it seems kind of... <laughs> it's, it's like 300 pages. Right. 300 dense pages about yeah, anthropomorphic kids, animals. <laughs> yeah. Going through shit, too. I don't know. Yeah. Kids, kids those days were, I guess, more sophisticated than us. They definitely I was reading, are. like, Twins of Sweet Valley High. <laughs> Have you seen all the TikToks about um, the click books? Yes. I yeah, read those too. I did too. And it's like, um, I had brand awareness at like 12 years old. Like that's thanks to the click. So yeah, I never, I feel like I never fully got, I wasn't that into that. I also didn't read the Gossip Girl books either. If you guys don't the know the Gossip Girl books, the click book was, it was like probably for middle school age or yeah. a little older, but yeah. it was just about like a girl who she like moves to a new school anyways there's like a group of mean girls and they are really mean i mean they're giving kids lots of ideas on how to bully people essentially it's kind of crazy that that got published yeah but it is what it is it is what it is all right well (laughs) um if you guys want to talk to us about books you can find us at the good eve girls on twitter or the good evening girls on instagram or the good eve girls on tiktok speaking of Speaking of TikTok, yeah, come on over. We're having a grand old time. Uh, just to say, we will be having one week off. So, yes, see you we'll never. taking a little break. So, you know, try and just make it through without us. We miss Listen you to already. an old episode. Leave us a review if you really miss us. Give us five please, stars. Um, please, please. <laughs> uh, follow us on all of our platforms. We love you. And we'll see yeah. you next time, kids. We're the Good Evening Girls. We are. Bye-bye. Bye. Now.